hello and welcome to Farm Buds, compounding professional narratives with student perspectives. I'm Sierra. And I'm Liz. Today we are joined by Dr. Crystal Mormon Beischer, an associate clinical professor at the University of Utah College of Pharmacy. Hello, Dr. Beischer. So our first question today is, why did you pursue a career in pharmacy? So I actually kind of fell into pharmacy. My initial plan was to be a veterinarian, and I was pre-vet. I know. I was pre-vet, and I worked for a vet in a very rural area, and I don't, I'm not going to go into the, the traumatic experience I had there, but there was a, an experience I had while working there that made me decide that that was not the appropriate career path for me. And I went to my advisor's office, who was my chemistry professor at the time, and kind of had a little crisis, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I always thought I'd do something in healthcare. Um, I don't like to touch people. I can't be a nurse or a doctor, <laughs> essentially, was the conversation. Um, and he said, well, you know, have you ever thought about a career in pharmacy? And I'm like, huh, no, I haven't. And so I got a job in a pharmacy and started shadowing people who did different things in pharmacy. And I just decided that was the right path for me. Hmm. Yeah. So I guess touching animals is very different than touching humans. But she still doesn't touch humans. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We, no, I'm just kidding. You know, it's sort of like, <clears throat> like it, I have children and yeah. I changed their diapers and I've cleaned up all kinds of messes. Yeah. But I don't want to do that for anyone else's children. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's kind of like, I don't know. There's really... something about animal mess that to me was less I totally problematic. Know. Not very many zoonoses, really, right? Oh. Much more likely to get sick from a person. For sure. That's a good point. <laughs> that is a really good point. Yeah. Huh. Who would have thought? <laughs> well, and that really resonates with me. That's part of the reason why I'm here. I don't want to touch people either. Yeah. See? I feel like that's a common story that people need to hear, that it's okay. There's a place for you in healthcare, even if you don't particularly like to be close, if you have a bubble. Hmm. This is true. I don't have any bubbles. Come here. Oh, I know you don't. I've been told I have a very large personal space. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, so out of out of the zoo and into the school of pharmacy, where did you go to pharmacy school? I went to pharmacy school at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. Oh. Yeah. That's fun. It's a great place. And it's humid there, isn't it? It is humid there. Oh, thank you. But it's like there's the beach, there's water. It's beautiful. Hmm. Loved it there. So how do you find yourself in Utah then? So um, when I was a student, the person who taught drug information for me was Nanette Berenson, who is now, um, I think her title is Associate Vice President of Shared Clinical Services at Intermountain Healthcare. Might have gotten that wrong, but she was a pharmacist. She was on faculty, and I fell into drug information partially because of that class, and I did a residency with her. She's originally from Utah. And in my last year of residency, she came back to be the director of pharmacy to open Intermountain Medical Center. And she recruited me for a job in pulmonary hypertension clinic the year after I finished my residency. And that's how I ended up here. That's pretty interesting. Okay. Well, woof. That's crazy, though. So she just said, hey, you want to come to Utah? 
She work did. with me? She said, you know, I need a, a clinical pharmacist in pulmonary hypertension. And I said, Nanette, I don't know anything about pulmonary hypertension. And she said, Crystal, nobody knows anything about pulmonary hypertension. Greg Elliott knows everything about that. He needs you for the other things. Yeah. And so, yeah, I came and I interviewed and I really loved the team and I really liked um, Dr. Elliott and that was a fit. And so I came out. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And that seems to be a really common story because as we move in pharmacy school, we're being trained as generalists. Right. And then all of a sudden, I guess at some point in your career, you just specialize. Yes. But, you know, so Jean Nappy is a pharmacist who was, um, she's very well known. She's retired now, I think, fully, but maybe she still has a, a little bit of hand in some things. But, you know, her practice philosophy was very much, like she was, cardiology was her specialty. But her practice philosophy was like, pharmacists need to be generalists. Like you on a cardiology team, your main contribution isn't necessarily the cardiology drugs or, you know, like you're not diagnosing. Your job is to see the whole picture and the whole patient. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of subscribe to that practice philosophy where it's like, even if you're a specialist, you're a generalist because you're the only one on a, on a super specialized team that probably knows anything about the primary care drugs. Um, and so my role on that pulmonary hypertension team was more therapeutic drug monitoring. So I, I managed warfarin for those patients. And I also uh, managed like all of the LFT monitoring for the drugs that required that. But I also did medication reconciliations. And I was looking out for how are the interventions we're making as a team going to impact all the other things this patient is taking in their other disease states. And so... Um, you know, some people definitely get very specialized, but I think most pharmacists still have that lens of like looking at the whole picture and being willing to kind of make recommendations for some things that that maybe other people aren't thinking about because they might be looking more at a particular disease state. Do you ever feel like that is sometimes lost, though, where a pharmacist, you know, maybe starts in that general, you know, in the general of pharmacy um, and then becomes or kind of finds this niche and like this niche, I should say. But do you ever find them that they're just so stuck into it that they are that would I don't want to say that they're not actively learning because maybe they're still learning within that niche, but they fall out of the other areas. And what does what impact does that have or create for them? Well, I mean, I'm sure that happens. Uh -huh. the, the people who I know mostly, I mean, I know a lot of great pharmacists and I would say you know, they may not be like, they're not going to manage your diabetes and be like, you know what, I can totally adjust your insulin, but they are up to date enough mm -hmm. in kind of a broad range of areas that they know what's at least happening. Okay. You know, and yeah. I mean, that's one of the benefits of doing something like board certification where, you know, you have to have so many hours of CE that there's no way you could get them all in a tiny niche. Like you have to mm -hmm. be a generalist to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, even I, I haven't done board certification for the specialties like PEDS or, but even within that, I know that there's a lot of thought put into what CE would be useful or appropriate. And so I think they still get enough of what they need because they don't need to be specialist level in everything. No one's an expert at everything. So really, you yeah, you want to be an expert in that field, but kind of still in your periphery, be able to see that whole picture. Got it. 
That makes sense. And just be thinking like a pharmacist, right? Because yeah. you, you, that never goes away. Even if you're like, man, I don't know anything about this drug, you know how to check for an interaction with it and you know how to look right. up information and figure out if that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I guess we will move right along to what does a day in your professional life look like? Wow. Um, it looks, it can look very different. So I, I kind of wear several hats and, you know, everything, you know, it's not like I teach today and tomorrow I'm going to do experiential education. It all kind of gets thrown in the mix, right? So I may spend the morning working with my staff in experiential education and kind of planning out whatever we're working on there responding to emails that have to do with that. I might have to address concerns that come up on rotations. Like that doesn't get scheduled or planned. It just kind of pops up when it pops up. Um, might have a student who is in crisis or has illness or, you know, like there's all kinds of things that have to be worked around. And then you just kind of fit that in. Um, and I, I don't know that I have a typical day, I guess is what I would say. It's like I, I kind of have a job to do. And I have ex responsibilities on kind of the faculty side and I have responsibilities on the experiential education side. And that all becomes like one big job that you just juggle and manage and prioritize all the pieces so that it all gets done. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that I can tell you how that happens some days, but it does. I get that. <laughs> I get that. It's called parenthood. It's kind of like, you know, it's just life is like that, yeah. right? You've got a million things on your plate and it just kind of... Yeah, just do it. So for those listening, what is experiential education? Yeah, so experiential education in pharmacy is that hands-on component. Um, so we have didactic education where students spend, you know, about three years in the classroom learning principles and foundational knowledge. And then um, they have introductory pharmacy practice experiences and advanced pharmacy practice experiences that compi comprise about 40% of the curriculum and that's all kind of in a practice environment, learning by doing, learning by observing in some cases initially, but hands-on patient care, hands-on work in pharmacy with a licensed pharmacist. Hmm. That's pretty cool. That seems like it's a lot, though, to manage, like, practice sites and then, you know, individuals to help manage that and then ensure that students have access and... That sounds crazy. Well, I think that's like why you have a really good team, right? Yeah. So you know, my job is kind of to make sure all the cylinders are clicking, that we're meeting ACPE standards, yeah. and to hire and train the staff appropriately. But a lot of the day-to-day -day function happens completely outside of my work. You know, it yeah. be, it's become kind of a well-oiled machine where – the staff know how to you know, get students signed up and their paperwork completed and what they're looking for in terms of health requirements and how to read a background check. And so I really only get pulled in to process variations, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is not something that's typical now. What do we do? Mm -hmm. um, and then more of the strategic planning and the academic side of experiential education. So, you know, writing evaluations, any kind of... Um, issues with performance or, you know, students who, who may be struggling, that kind of stuff falls to me. But the day-to-day the -day functioning is managed by a manager, and that's kind of my 
right-hand person and they manage the other two staff members. So, you know, it all, it, it works. It works. Yeah. Did COVID-19 make it difficult to be placing students? Oh, um, like when they kicked them out of all the practice sites, you yeah. mean? Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's what I was yeah. alluding yeah. to. Yeah. 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 That, that, was, oh, no. that was really actually quite easy to navigate. No, I'm kidding. Mm. Um, oh so, gosh. you know, one thing I will say, and this is not unique to the U, we had to be very creative in getting people graduated on time. And, you know, one advantage we do have here is we have more hours in experiential education than are required by the standards um, or by the Practice Act law, actually. And so for a lot of students, they were just done. You know, they didn't do their last block. And in that, some people were happy about that and some people were really unhappy about that. Um, ACPE was also really flexible about, you know, poison control counted as ambulatory care. And so there were a lot of things done that were definitely not what we would traditionally do or even maybe what we would ideally do. But we managed to graduate that whole class on time, Mm -hmm. despite, you know, having a long time where students were not allowed in a practice facility. Our preceptors were very um, adaptable and, quite frankly, honestly, a heroic effort because, you know, they are dealing with crisis standards of care in their own facilities, but also figuring out how to do distance learning Mm -hmm. for an experiential site. Mm -hmm. So it, I mean, it it took a lot of people and there were many, many meetings between, you know, it was like with me and the administration at University of Utah Health, our administration at the college to like put our heads together and creatively get on the same page about how do we get these students out on time. Um, so I mean, I'm really proud of that work. It was very collaborative and I think it was very creative. And then, you know, as 2020 progressed and then a whole new class came in, I think we just got better and better at figuring out distance and, and healthcare moved to a lot of remote patient care as well. Right. So there's pharmacists who still haven't gone back to onsite work because they weren't necessarily, they didn't need to be there to do their work. And at the time, we were trying to keep bodies out of hospitals to, you know, keep everyone as healthy as possible. So I, I think just we've learned new ways of doing things that, you know, we may continue to do that way well past the pandemic. Um, but, yeah, it, it was definitely challenging and stressful in the moment. Like, it was very stressful in the moment to wonder if you were going to be able to pull that off. Hmm. The heist. Yeah. With a heist. So, so then in, it, I have to ask then, how do you balance um, academia and then a clinical practice? How do you do that if all of this is taking on? And then you do have a well oiled machine, but how do you yeah. balance those two? Well, you know, I think this is like true for work life balance too. Like every, you know, there, the idea that like you will be spending equal amounts of time on everything at any given moment is just not accurate. And so I think it's the the important thing for me is like keeping the big picture of all the things that I'm required to do. And it's a lot of time management, right? It's figuring out how long does it, it take to do a certain task, streamlining where you can, collaborating where you can, so that, you know, over the years, I've really tried to figure out how to 
maximize my time in any one area. So I may not update my slides every year, right? Mm -hmm. If it's like, if nothing's changed, it's like there are times where I'm like, um, this is good enough today. Um, and I think figuring out where that works and where it's like, you know what, this has to be updated now, or I have to spend time doing X, Y, or Z. And so it's, it's always a manage of juggling priorities and being flexible with what gets to take precedent today. Like if a student is going to fail a rotation, for example, like everything else kind of gets put to the side for that day. And, you know, we're navigating with preceptor and student and there might be multiple meetings involved and, and there's planning for remediation and how is there a way that we can get the student where they need to be. So it's it's also trying, fighting my instincts to procrastinate, which I really love to do. But knowing, you know, if I do that, something's going to come up and work's not going to get done. So, like, when I teach in the fall, that class, all the assignments are uploaded and keyed and ready to go on, like, by, by the beginning of August. Mm -hmm. So that the class just runs. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, I don't have to be like, oh, my gosh, somebody had an issue on Wednesday morning and now I don't have lecture slides. So I think it's it's just planning ahead for things that are could take you off course so that you don't end up not getting you don't want to drop balls, right? Yeah. That makes any sense. What achievement in your career are you the most proud of? Um, well, I would say the services that I've built. Um, and some are still running and some look a lot different than they used to look, but you know, I, I started a pulmonary hypertension service at Intermountain Medical Center, which continued for a time. I started a drug information and medication safety service there, which ended up ultimately um, they rehired more of a med safety focused person. And then that person's kind of merged into corporate. But that's, you know, I laid a lot of that foundational work and I actually trained that person as a student. She, she did my rotation. So um, and then South Jordan Health Center, McKay. And I you know, started that service and Eve, who's there now, was one of our residents who we trained. So it's kind of in this service, I think I'm the most proud of because, you know, we've come a long way in experiential education in terms of staffing. You know, when I started, it was me and a part time FTE. And I think um, one thing I struggled with earlier in my career, I think, was getting resources and getting people to, like, acknowledge that I needed more help. And so I think the fact that I've now built this to a team of three full-time people and another part-time person, um, I'm really proud of that because I think I've been able to establish like what I could accomplish with that extra staff and, and really been better at telling my story and, and what I'm doing to administration to get buy-in for that. And so, um, and I'm really proud of the quality of experience that we offer students here. I, I don't think there's another college of pharmacy that does a better job with the quality of rotations and the variety of rotations available for their students. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, people can write yeah, in for some fun, um, but no, I mean, I, I would I like put that. us up there with anyone yeah. in terms of, and, and how individualized we try to make things for students and the yeah. things that we do to, to help them achieve their own unique goals, I think, you know, that's something I'm really proud of. That's awesome. You hit on something that was so foundational for us when we started this podcast. And I think that can really be summed up by asking, why is it important for pharmacists to tell their stories? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we hear about burnout all the time, right? And we hear about people leaving the profession and people leaving other health professions. And I think a big part of that has to do with just overwhelm, right? There's just mm-hmm. too much work. There's not enough time. And it and it, you can say people aren't prioritizing correctly. I don't believe that. I think people are really under-resourced in a lot of places. And, you know, in any organization, there's only so much to go around. And so getting a piece of the pie can be really challenging. And so I think it's not just telling your story. It's telling your story and aligning that with what matters for the organization. Because you can have a great story. And I think this is where I struggled initially is like I had kind of my own Mm -hmm. mission for my service. And it's like, you know, and it did align, but not being able to really connect it in a way of like, this is what I will do for the organization. This is how this connects to our mission as a whole. And I think if you can do that, you do end up with resources. And that's night and day in terms of like how you feel at work, you know, and, you know, being overwhelmed for long periods of time, that's, that leads to burnout and it leads to people leaving when they probably could stay. So I think, and they might want to stay, you know, I think most people when they leave, it's not, you know, people say they leave, you leave your boss, not your employer or not the job. But I think sometimes it's a combination and sometimes it, but I think a lot of people want to find a way to stay and they try to, but, but communicating to your, the people who can make decisions that matter for you, what, how, what would help you stay and, and them being bought into that is is really important. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Right. Then how do we, how do we, like, how can we train or coach or learn to, <clears throat> because you can always have a big idea and you yeah. can have those things, but how, how, what is it that, that prevents us from getting that second half of saying the why behind what we want to do. Cause we can scream. It's like almost like what I always say, you can be the loudest person in the room, but you're not making any sense. Right. Yeah. So how can you be the loudest person in the room and also make sense? Because I feel like yeah. that's sometimes very hard to do. Right. Well, and I will say, I think what helped me over the years was like paying attention. You know, I ended up in a leadership position pretty early in my career and like paying attention to what are they talking about? What is the focus here? And I think you need a mentor. Mm-hmm. Like you have to have multiple mentors probably. I, I know I have. But, you know, who can kind of, you can pull aside and be like, this is what I'm trying to do. And, you know, it helps if they're in your organization and they know how your organization functions. Um, I think, and, and, you know, there's going to be times where you find yourself somewhere that you really just need to go because, you don't align or, you know, you just, you're, you, you can't integrate. I think you have to have a mentor who you can be vulnerable with to some degree Mm -hmm. and be honest about like, this is what is stressing me out, or this is what I need in order to function at the level I know I'm capable of and have someone who hears that and is also creative and helping you kind of come along when you're young to solve those problems and someone who will be honest with you about, you know, maybe the things you're doing that are not 
working in your favor because you know we if you there's this thing called the Johari window mm-hmm. where it's like you know here's the part of you that everybody sees you see it everybody sees it there's the part of you that's like your inner world that you see and nobody sees mm-hmm. um there's a part of you that you don't see and everyone else does mm-hmm. and then there's that part that is unknown to you and everyone which is the scary part right <laughs> But I think like having honest people who see what you don't see, Mm -hmm. who are safe to tell you that and do it in a constructive and loving and positive way, as opposed to like, you know, making you feel like you're not good enough because you have limitations, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I totally get that. I totally get that. One of the big reasons we brought you here today is so you can answer this question. What is drug information? (laughs) <laughs> well, what is I drug mean, info? drug information is honestly what pharmacists do, right? Whether That's they, true. whether they know it or not. No, um, yeah. you know, drug information is, is the collection or the body of knowledge about medications. Um, it's also a service. It's a function of communicating that information to other people. Um, so it can mean a lot of different things, but ultimately drug information is just information about medications. And, you know, there's that process of how do you assimilate that and how do you communicate that and how do you make that specific to a certain patient? Um, drug information is a black hole. That's what drug information is. Well, that's what it if is. I, could I have it. spent too many hours in drug information. No, you haven't spent enough. That's all. I feel well. like I've lived in a black <laughs> hole. I think, you know, so... so just one channel after the next. You're like, I'm just going to look, focus on this. And then next thing you know, you're just way over here. You can get in the weeds. But, oh, you know, sure. if you wanted, wanted to summarize it, it is the foundation or the bedrock of clinical pharmacy. It is. Like that's how clinical pharmacy started was with drug information centers and then moving those drug information specialists to the floor where they could interact with the team. And, you know, from there, everything you guys see has evolved essentially since the 1960s. So clinical pharmacy is a very young concept, relatively speaking, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay, so then for drug information, who or what entity or persons decides what parts of drug information are the most important? Right, and I think that, that has a lot of different answers, right? Yeah. So if you are on a team and you're taking care of a specific patient, the team is what decides that, and that team includes the patient. Mm-hmm. So, you know, taking into account, like, in a given body of knowledge, what is most pertinent to that patient. When you're looking at a healthcare system, it's a team of providers and clinicians and quality and safety people, like a whole representation of all the people who make a healthcare system function, getting together to look at, like, what is the most safe, effective, agent for a given population. And so, you know, usually there are pharmacists who are combing the data to distill that down so the rest of the group can read it. So I would ultimately say in that case, pharmacists are deciding what's most important, but they're using knowledge of the organization, the providers they work with, the types of patients they care for to make that decision. So we've seen that um, drug information is always evolving. We have new studies coming out um, for drugs um, that are FDA approved and that aren't yet. So how do we resolve and how do we integrate those new sources of information with existing sources? 
Well, I mean, I think that comes down to critical literature evaluation, right? As new studies come out, part of of a journal club or of actually critically evaluating an article or a study is looking at how does this fit with everything else I already know. You know, if it's totally contradictory to everything we've ever learned, that's where, you know, I think um, sometimes people not in healthcare and maybe sometimes people in healthcare don't understand the value of reproducibility. But, you know, sometimes, and journals will sometimes reject an article that's overlapping content, but it's like reproducibility is part of the foundation of the scientific method, right? So sometimes it might be if, if you have a clinical study that it's like this flies in the face of everything we know, you may need another study before you're willing to believe that that's not just, you know, chance that they found those those results. Um, but in general, you know, I think we, we tend to make more incremental steps where this adds a little bit and it's like, well, that, or, or this piece of literature or knowledge provides some insight into something we didn't understand before and it makes sense and it flows and it follows. And so I think, um, critical thinking and that kind of skill set is critical to being able to ever get forward in medicine to be able to decide what seems to be true and something that applies to this population and should alter care versus like, hmm, let's wait and see where this goes. So, you know, we're obviously, we were former students. Let's not, you know, let's not hide that from anybody. <laughs> but, um, you know, when we, when we took drug information our, our first year, our first or P1 year, I think a lot of us didn't really understand what drug info was in terms of what we could benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we just get a syllabus and we look and we see these assignments that we have to do. But like, in theory, the reason that we would like to introduce, you know, incoming uh, P1s to drug information is what? What is the primary outcome? Do you see what I did there? You feel <laughs> nice. that? Are you getting ready to write exposure? a research paper? Yeah, I am. No, but like, what is the goal, the main takeaway from, you know, taking drug info as a incoming as a P1. Yeah, well, I would say the the general gist of it is there are going to be times in your career, throughout your career, starting now up until the time you stop practicing where you do not know the answer. Mm-hmm. But if you can find the answer, that makes you a competent provider. If your response is I don't know, every time you don't know, you're not going to be employed very long. Yeah. Right? So I think to me that course forms the foundation for lifelong learning, mm-hmm. right, beyond what we teach you in a, in a curriculum. And, and let's be honest, I mean, I don't think there's any secret that PharmD curriculums do not comprehensively cover every area of drug therapy management and every medication and every situation you may encounter in a career. We provide foundational knowledge and a skill set for you to continue to learn. And to me, drug information is one of the most foundational skills in terms of being able to continue your learning journey beyond, you know, these walls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the truth. It's also the gateway to a black hole. Well, you know. They calculated how many hours I was on my Microsoft Word app, like that document. Oh, that's it was rough. insane. I no. was told once um, by my mentor, the enemy of good is better. Yep. Yes. <laughs> and I think yes. 
for some of us, it's harder to rein. And you're just naturally curious, right? I think if you're an intellectually curious person, the the detours can be fun and interesting. And you're like, wow, I did not know that. And it has nothing to do with what I'm actually answering, but it's fascinating. It's very fascinating. Also, (laughs) give me something else. There's got to be another reason, right? That's always like, what's more? That was fun, though. You probably picked up on this when we were in your class, but she is very passionate. Like, I, I wish I was half as excited about all of the information that's out there as Liz is. Yeah. It, you know, it's not the majority of students. I was that, like, I was the one that I was like, what are you guys talking about? This is fun. And yeah. they're all like, you know, yeah. you're nuts. And that's, yeah. that's, see what I did with my career. That's kind of. Listen. There's a place for all of us. Oh, <laughs> Whatever see, it is you a, want to I've do. I've got a section somewhere. Hear me out. <laughs> that's that's funny. No, but I really did like the class. I mean, I did spend quite a bit of time on those case studies, but I, I had a fun time. Listen, I've had at least three students this semester tell me they've enjoyed the class, and yeah. to me, that's a win. Yeah, that's a huge <laughs> win. Although I advocate, I, de- I deliberately said, I'm not going to go down to that library and touch those books that everyone else is finding. I'm going to find other sources. <laughs> And that took half the time. New books. I <laughs> do. Because everyone was having the same answers. Yeah. And so it's like everyone's going to read the same stuff. It's like, mm, I'm going to find something different. Can I, be? Can I be different? Just a little bit. Oh, you always are. Yeah. For sure. I know. I am. You're right. So, okay. I guess that another thing goes, aside from the class, and, and it's very important that we all have a, f- a fundamental, a foundation for drug information. Because I'll tell you what. Um, when, you're, when I came in as a P1, I was like, okay, great. This is like basically my undergrad. The first semester we had biochem and et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, when do we get to be pharmacists? We're all like, yeah, let's do something with that's pharmacy related. And then we get to drug info and we're like, what are we doing? What's happening? But it did start to click once we find out the sources and where to look. And as I'm going into P2 and now we're doing therapeutics, it's like, oh, we, we're lexicomping like this with our <laughs> eyes closed. We're using this. Nope, don't go there. You know. And so I think we took take it for granted that all that time in that class because now we use it like it's the back of our hand. Exactly. And nobody will ever admit that because no, they're going to say. No, people do admit it. Good. Usually okay. as P4s. Well, where are they at? We yeah, just there did. you go. Yeah, P4s. usually as P4s, well, they're like, true. you know, I really kind of hated that. Um, and I I tell the P1s, I'm like, you know, this con- assignment continues because I continue to get feedback later in the curriculum from people that that was like one of the most useful classes they had in terms of like their development and their ability to perform on rotations, which is important to me. Um, So yeah, I think, you know, application is a a higher form of learning Mm -hmm. in Bloom's taxonomy, right? And I think it is harder too. I I mean, it's harder to go from knowledge to application, but it's what you're going to have to do. And so I think learning to do that really young in your career is important. I just had a hard time starting because I'm really OCD about formatting. Mm. And I was very overwhelmed with how can I get this all and be concise? Because I don't want to look at something that's 17 pages. I want it to be like two pages, you know? So you're blurting out all of this stuff. And so that skill set was something that really took me a long time. You can get all the information you want, but it's picking out what's pertinent. Yeah. And that that is the challenge of that assignment. It's not completing it. It's just what do I need to know and what do I not need to know? Yep. Right. And so when I finally got that down, I was like, okay, we can cruise now. But I guess um, in terms of now moving back to maybe application to people that work in drug information, is there a level of protection 
for drug info specialists or that or clinicians that utilize these information resources. So let me say they, you know, use a database or they use they find a piece of information, a study, um, and then they apply that to the patient, obviously with patient priority, right, mm-hmm. and patient consent. But let, is there a level of protection where maybe something didn't go the way that it was intended or the way that it was thought to be? Mm-hmm. Um, it, how how does one kind of take ownership of that or feel protected aside from just normal, you know, safety in, in terms of a hospital and ownership. But from that, who's, who's not responsible, who's like responsible for maybe when things go astray and they're not, they don't do, they're not, they don't add up. Does that yeah, make sense? No. Well, the reality is anybody can be named in a lawsuit. Yeah. Right. Um, and that includes pharmacists and, you know, particularly if you've provided incorrect information, I think, um, will that lawsuit prevail? Mm-hmm. Will it be dismissed? Will there be standing for it? Like all that kind of depends. Um, but I think, you know, there's a reason facilities have medical malpractice insurance and, and you're covered under that. But I also would say, you know, having a process and documenting where you looked and what you found and documenting your interventions is something that people really kind of hate doing and, and tend to not want to do. But it's like, in five years or two years when a lawsuit comes to to fruition, will you remember the day you misquoted yeah. a reference or that you, no. you – will you remember what you said at all? And I think, no, because you didn't go into it thinking, well, you know, I'm really screwing this up now. I should write this down. Like, no, you – in your mind, you dispensed the drug correctly. You gave right information. You – took into account everything you saw in that patient's chart. And, you know, maybe you made an error and maybe it was idiosyncratic. Like there are times where things just go wrong and I've certainly had that happen. But when it comes down to like the legal process, if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. And so I think there is some level of protection to say, this is what I said on that day. This is what, where I looked, this is where I found it. I verified and I validated it. Like that process that I teach in my class does offer as much protection as possible, but it doesn't, I mean, everybody I know who's a physician has been sued at some point in their career, right? Mm-hmm. Has the the plaintiff always won? No. But there are definitely, t- like, th- this is just a litigious society, and when people have an undesirable outcome, that's um, something that happens a lot. And so I think the way you protect yourself is documenting what you've done. And, you know, maybe you don't document every single intervention, but like certainly the ones where you're using literature in a way, you know, it's like gray literature. It's, you know, you're extrapolating to a situation where it's like, this isn't exactly what the article says, but this is why we're doing it. And Mm -hmm. this is who I've discussed this with. And this is why we're doing it. Um, But the more you document, the more you know, even the mundane things you do can actually have been done in error and you wouldn't know it because you didn't intend to create that error. Right. You know? It is a pain in the butt to document everything. It is. But But I, I, yeah, it is important. And then I think something that often gets overlooked in drug info is the way that the curriculum is structured here at the U. Mm -hmm. Some of your very first cases come from drug info. We have like these questions. Like, yeah. There's this lady who's pregnant and she wants to know if she can take this over-the-counter supplement. And for the first semester of P1 year, you're not really getting that from all of the classes. So I think in that way, drug info was a really great exposure 
to um, clinical applications of didactic knowledge. And I did appreciate that. Um, and I guess more generally, what do you think the future of pharmacy looks like? Well, don't I wish I knew. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think this is the nice thing about the future is it's not fixed, mm -hmm. right? And all of us play a role in what the future of pharmacy looks like. And I think that's like, it's a cop-out answer in a way, but I think it's like, what do you want it to look like? And if pharmacists could kind of come to some agreement in some way, shape, or form about what it is we do, how we function on a team, that's what the future becomes. And if we sit by passively and we wait to see what happens, that's what it becomes is whatever someone else decided it to be. So I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with being involved and being, being aware of what's happening at a legislative level, being aware of issues in healthcare and thinking about like, how could this be solved in policy? How could this be solved with a different practice model? And you know, we always say like one of our missions here at the U is to raise leader or to train, not raise. Sorry, I must have children <laughs> to train. We are children. We are children. It, no, no, you're not. But you're like, you're like my grown up children, right? <laughs> we are. This is true. Um, but, you know, how we're, we're here to train leaders. Mm -hmm. We're here to train thought leaders. We are here to train the people who will decide the future of pharmacy. So for me to sit here and tell you what I think it is, which happened to me, you know, there were many people who told me like what pharmacy was going to look like in 20 years. And I promise you, none of them were right. Hmm. Actually. I mean, you know, I was told at one point that like there maybe would be in 20 no more, maybe in 20 more, but you know, like that there wouldn't be pharmacists dispensing that robots oh, yeah. would be doing all of it. Oh, that, yeah. and has robots. that happened? No. I, I mean, yes, robots have been implemented, but not to the degree or extreme yeah that people seem to think would happen, right? This is true. The really fundamental question that I always have with that is, like, who is going to load the robot? <laughs> like, the robot who is going to make itself. sure that there'll the robot, robot runs? No, yes. listen, there'll be, a there'll be a robot that loads a robot well, that loads and that I've robot. And I've heard people tell me this, right? But it's like, who programs the decision support software? A robot. We're, I mean, we're all just robots. That's what basically that argument is saying that I am not human. I'm a robot. It almost like I feel like the future some people envision feels a lot like that movie Wall E. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, so do we also lose our bones at some point? Like, yeah. you know, I mean, like, what right. do humans do when they cease <laughs> creating and working? <laughs> like, how do we fill our time? How do we make money? I, I'm, I don't know. I think. But this sense of like inevitability that will all be replaced. I'm like, only if you. Create that. It's kind of morbid thinking about that, listening to that just now. It's really morbid. Like, we're doomed. We're just going to be We're not. But that's robots. the thing. It's the same, like, you know, you hear all this economic. And I'm not an economist, but yeah. I'm like, well, the stock market only crashes if you guys freak out and pull your money out, right? Yeah, this is true. Like, you're that's the ones creating the economy. Like, all of yeah. us create the economy. And so, you know, Winston Churchill is the only thing to fear is fear itself. That's yeah. true. We create these scary realities because we're afraid and we just let it happen. Yeah. Or we actively engage in our own self-sabotage. This is true. Well, I think it's time to stop beating around the bush then hey. and ask the budding question. Oh, yes. Is artificial intelligence going to take over drug information? It is such a timely question. You know why? Because yesterday um, I was talking with a colleague <sighs> in EE Thank about um, OpenAI, you know, released this. What is it? Chat CG. 
GT or something oh, like that, yeah, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like natural language processing, and it's like, this is going to just like, is this going to take knowledge-based jobs? Um, and so I actually read, a f- I was reading about it yesterday, and then I saw this question, and I was like, hmm, how funny. So fun side story, where I'm creating an elective that I'm going to be rolling out, and I was like, well, let's just see if it makes a syllabus. So we entered like the sources I was going to use and kind of the, the point. And I'm like, I've got a video of, you know, this is a radio thing, but, or whatever, podcast. It does not. <laughs> Dating myself. But, you know, it's like this video of it creating the syllabus. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, you know, some of this is actually coherent. You mm-hmm. know, the objectives are coherent. The structure of the class is completely nonsensical, right? It's like topic from this author's book topic same topic next author say in instead of like we're going to assimilate this uh-huh. and so my thinking on ai is what we call intelligence it's like well if in in the definition of intelligence is something about you know data assimilation data collection and assimilation so if in that regard i think ai can replace a lot of what we do in terms of information gathering but to date, and I don't know where AI is going, I don't see any creative, innovative, insightful production from it, right? It's not mm-hmm. like it's it's offering you insight into a new way or insight into what the data actually mean. So my opinion at this point, and I could be wrong, I don't have a crystal ball, but I think it, it kind of depends on us, but like AI could have a role in taking some of those like really tedious, awful, like I hate mm-hmm. making a syllabus. Mm, me too. I hate the sections of a monograph that are just repeating the drug-drug interactions. And, you know, there's things in my job that I'm like, ugh, I got to sit down and do this. Mm-hmm. I think AI could do a lot of those tasks and free us up to to have ideas. Like this is the research I want to do. And it facilitates the background and the research that you want to do. So to me, I don't think in any way, at least in its current state and probably not for many years to come, will it replace thoughtful, insightful, creative people. Mm-hmm. I think if all you're offering is a repackaging of facts, then, you know, yeah, you might be at risk of being replaced. But I think if I think we could harness it to make ourselves a lot more efficient and to to actually help burnout, because if you think about burnout, it's like not always about having too much work to do. Sometimes it's about doing a lot of work that doesn't really fulfill you. Mm-hmm. And it's, right. you're not interested and you're not passionate. And it also is a, a big source of errors when we're doing redundant work mm-hmm. because our brain sort of shuts off. And I'm like, so think about the tasks you do on autopilot mm-hmm. and AI could do those. Mm-hmm. And the tasks that, you know, you really need to think like sometimes, like you said, you can sit down and collect all this information. But what is important to that patient? And I still think at least for the foreseeable future, for me, it's a clinician who's going to be deciding that. But you could maybe have, you know, a robot collecting it for you for you to look out and think mm-hmm. about how much time that would save. Mm-hmm. So um, that's just kind of how I think about it. I don't think we're going to be replaced and I do think, like, I've always had the question of, like, so who programs the robot? Who, who? The robots. Some, yeah, right? Like, uh, Let me where, tell you, if robots are anything like my floor Roomba robot, that thing, is, that thing just bumps into the wall. It's I do not want anything to do with robots. It literally goes, 
and sometimes mine just stops in the middle of the floor and does a little circle yeah. and goes in a weird direction. And I'm like, you were almost you literally the were dust. on the path. Yeah. You, what? How is it's my a supermodel? My there question is animal is... hair in your path, and you turn to avoid it. <laughs> I just watching them. Sometimes you're like, what are you doing? Yes, it's... And then it goes over your bar stools, and I'm like, yeah. I know I should pick them but up, but stuck. what are it's you like... doing? And you hear, mm, mm, mm. and then yes. and then it turns red, and then it goes home, and you're like, oh, so when you're mad, you just yeah. go dock, but the rest of the house can be dirty. You know, I'm just, I can't with the thing. I think we have a lot of work to do before we're replaced by robots. That's what I would say. Seriously. But I do, I will say, you know, a lot of, I've read a lot of articles about it in the last couple of days because I'm, I am interested in it. And it's, you know, this sense of humanities and, and these other sciences kind of have in a lot of ways refused to engage in a meaningful way with technology and have also failed to have the influence on the development of technology that would keep it ethical and, you know, a sound product. And so to me, there has to come a point where we start working together to figure out, um, there's that question of like, we can do it, but should we? And I think we have failed to answer that in a lot of cases with technology in our society. Agreed. And I love how you tried to use AI to make a syllabus because some of my favorite things on the internet is like, we made an AI watch a thousand hours <laughs> of rom-coms and then we asked it to make a rom-com script, right? And we find these yeah. things on these funny websites because like they're kind of coherent. Yeah. But mostly it's just hilarious. <laughs> right. And th- I, I'll show you the syllabus because it's sort of like that. You're like, there's parts of it that you're like, well, this could be useful. And I think with some development, I don't know. I envision a future where I'm like, I don't write a syllabus. I don't program. Like, I don't do any of the boring work. I just am like, you know, all these great ideas I have stored in my phone that I'm like, when I have time, I'll do that. Mm -hmm. I'll have time Mm -hmm. and I'll do that. Mm -hmm. That's. Yeah, let's do the fun stuff. Yeah. But you know what? Let me tell you something. A syllabus in a student's eyes is like a contract. Even though you put an asterisk, this is not a contract, and I am subject to change at any time. They come at you. Well, listen, you told me that I could get one point back after. I'm like, oh, this robot. And then you got to go have a conversation with the robot. And you're like, listen, dude, you're getting me in trouble over here. You know, so... It's, it's it's very interesting, but I agree. If they can get do the mundane stuff, yeah. the stuff that I don't have to waste energy on, yeah. that is very beneficial. And that's why people have assistants, because then they can go do the yeah. things that you don't want to waste the energy on. But then that also is kind of demoralizing to a human. Hey, go get me my coffee. But well, I don't got time to go get my coffee. But it's also, um, most of us don't get assistants. That's you true. Know? Like, that's I've true. never been offered someone to get me coffee. I have really- Do kids many... count as assistants? Oh, my son does make coffee now. Yeah. Mine doesn't, but I'm gonna treat her. I'm gonna train her how to do it. Train. Oh, it's like a life changer. He brings it into my room oh. before I'm even up. Wow. <laughs> I know. How God, much do you have to kid. pay him to get him to Nothing. do that? Wow. Um, he still believes in Santa Claus. He's oh, okay, patient. that's it. But you know, he works for the nice list all year long. That's so good. on his own. I don't have to threaten. Mine just lost a tooth. We're still on Tooth Fairy. She's still just yeah. Tooth Fairy came. Do you look at my dollars? And I'm like. Oh. My dollars. I have to say, as the older sibling, the best Christmas was when my younger brother still believed in Santa, but I didn't. Because I think the big thing to Santa, with Santa Claus is you've got to ask Santa for your biggest exactly. present, right? You, you've got to dial that in. And they can't leave you out. So I, I honestly think my daughter has stopped believing. Like, she's at least incredibly skeptical, yeah. but she's keeping it up for the sake. Like, she's sort of, like, still pretending because she knows how it works, right? She's like... Smart kids. Yeah. It's a really hard job, by the way. I mean, 
there's some things that they think about. I'm like, how am I supposed to do oh that? Gosh. I don't have a, I don't have a chimney. Talk about Santa animal. I, I've come up with. I've wasted so much powdered sugar and eaten half carrots. Mm-hmm. I mean, can't. What do you do? Reindeer food. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, I can't. Taping te- te- like. It's exhausting. The best strategy when they ask you a question is, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Oh, no. How do you think Oh, no, that? no, no, no. Because your girl did that. And there oh. was Tooth Fairy. And I had to have sprinkle trails. I had then had to have t- a toilet paper wall where it's like streamers coming down. I then had to have a tiny little trap because she wanted to catch her so she could give her a hug but then release her. I'm like, how am I supposed to do that? What am I supposed oh, to no, do? Oh, no. I say things like, oh, well, we couldn't catch Santa because... Oh, no. You know, that's part of the mystery. And if you caught him, he'd probably be on the naughty list. Oh, that's a good one. Well, he's got other kids to see, he right? He does have other kids to see, and we wouldn't want to deprive them. Oh, this is true. You guys better be in bed because if you're up, Santa won't stop here. Ugh. I have a chimney now, so this guy ain't <laughs> stopping anyway. What oh, am I supposed we- to do? Leave the door open and freeze all night. That's what I did. Santa's magic. You just, that's the, How you, do I teach you to come a back kid. to magic? Oh, my God. I'm science and science. <laughs> For science. Well, I don't know how he gets in. He just does. I know. I, you know what? I just got to sometimes be a kid. I feel like sometimes my brain is just like survival. But um, <clears throat> anyway, I, I really wanted to say thank you for coming in and talking to us about your career and your life and giving us advice about, you know, the the evolution of pharmacy. Because I think it's important that you can wear many hats and that's okay. And it's okay to also be super ambitious and to not lose sight of that because I feel like sometimes we do feel that we are not going to get to be what we want. It feels like we're just treading water when we're in school and that there is light at the end of the tunnel, but this tread is what's teaching you a very important skill set and a set of skill sets mm-hmm. and um, and that we don't spend the time to look at that in terms yeah. of how to effectively communicate or come to a resolution. We have no problem taking up spelling all the problems right but we don't ever have a resolution for those problems and that's what takes the most time and so i think that you sharing today about that has given insight and you know for those that are listening it's really important to not always be proactive but also to learn how to be reactive in a good way well and i would say my number one tip for anybody is do not go to your boss with a problem if you do not have a solution even if it is not the solution that they're going to go with like have two to three things where you're like, I thought, you know, maybe we could do this. Maybe we could do that. But I think like you don't want to be the greasy wheel in the sense of like, you know, you never solve problems, but you raise lots of them. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, and I think the other thing I'll tell you is what you want to do may change, mm-hmm. you know, and so being flexible and adaptable, it's great to be goal oriented and it's great to have ideas about what you want to do, but it's also, you know, like don't be so focused focus on a target that there's all these opportunities that might be better that you're like you've got blinders on and you're heading somewhere and you've missed kind of the the forest for the trees yeah right or the journey for the destination this is true now how do you how do you maybe take that scope and maybe hone it in a little bit because your girl is full-on circle of just looking at all of it and sometimes I feel like I need to go in but I guess that could be a topic for another day because I got too many things I've got things with things A list of things. They look at me like a Pandora's box. Seriously. Well, I think part of that is like the timing and the experiences and it's like it hones down little by because, you know, there's like the idea of something and there's reality of something. And so, you know, there might be like, wow, I really want to be a critical care pharmacist. And then you show up at 4 a.m. once and you're like, I'm never doing this again. (laughs) You know, like sometimes it's like just living it like that's the beauty of 40% of the curriculum being experiential is you have opportunity to be exposed to all these different areas 
Mm-hmm. And uh, every year, someone is like totally blown away by what they are interested in. Like mm-hmm. they thought they were heading one way, and then they do a rotation, and they're like, "I never even thought about this, and mm-hmm. it's amazing, and I love it, and it's a fit." And so I think it's just being open minded mm-hmm. as you experience things, being flexible, and realizing, you know what, you may have ten things you want to do, and quite frankly, you may do them all in your career. Mm-hmm. It's entirely possible. You aren't going to do them all at once. So we're not going to be taken over by robots because I got a list. <laughs> That's what that, that gives the me The robots hope. will leave you something to do. You will have a career, <laughs> yep. I promise. Yep. Oh, Programming the robots. No, no way. <laughs> I'm kidding. You should imagine my robots. They'd be insane. <laughs> Nobody would want my pet robots. It'd be like the Roombas, you know? What is she even doing? <laughs> But that's that's all that I have for questions. Do you have anything else, Sierra? I think we got to leave it with the mental image of the Roomba army. <laughs> that that was perfect. The Roomba army. If you know, you know. Seriously, I've had two Roombas, and they've never been better than one or the other. They're the same. They're almost just the same thing. Even at the 2.0 version, there's no upgrade. To be fair, I have a shark bot. Does it spit water out? Because uh, I was uh, about it, to get to that one, it but then I saw. What, well, I see how it vacuums. It, there's a mop and version. And I'm like, I know. I'm, I'm fearful of that I, now. I feel like... Could given, you imagine? <laughs> given its skill in vacuuming, I don't trust it with water. That's where I'm at with my shark bot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, well, on that note, we then, again, thank you so much for joining us. And we hope you had a fun time because I know I did. I did, too. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Mm-hmm. No problem. Bye-bye. This is the Farm Buds signing off. Until next time. Stay curious. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Farm Buds podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the University of Utah. Farm Buds is not responsible for and does not verify the accuracy of any information contained in this series. This podcast does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. The primary purpose of this show is to educate, inform, and allow those in the pharmacy profession to tell their stories. Mm-hmm.